Um, would you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation? And uh, let's, let's go to the easiest book in the Bible to find, because it's the last one. So you can just go to the back and open it up, and there it is. Tell me, is anybody here following the presidential elections in the USA? Is there, hands up if you are. Hands up, it, yeah? It's, it's like watching a car crash in very slow motion, isn't it? It's like horrifying. <gasps> You know, and then, but fascinating. I can't take my eyes off it. It's like, what was he going to say next? You know, it's, it's, it's just like extraordinary. It's one of those incredible things. I, I recently read a book uh, about the White House from an insider's point of view, from the staff point of view. Very interesting. And I've, I've, ever since West Wing started, you know, many years ago, I've been absolutely fascinated by the, the presidential elections and all the that American politics. Absolutely fascinating. So here is a picture of President Obama. And there he was, spent how many years getting ready to become president? I mean, I, I don't know. I did, was he aware of it? I'm not sure. I've not read his book. When he, he fell in that this was actually going to be uh, on the cards, it was going to happen. But a huge thing to happen for anybody. You go through all the, the, the primaries, you go through the whole election, the campaigning, the travelling, and what people say about you, and things being published about you. You go through all of this, and finally the election day comes round, and you win. So you give your victory speech, and you know, everyone, wow, it's amazing, it's all amazing. And then you're not president. Then for a little while you are Mr. President-elect, or Mrs. President-elect, it might be, mightn't it? And, and you'd move into what's called Blair House, which is near the White House, and it's, it's nearby, and you, you work to get ready to become the president. And then the day of the inauguration comes round, and you, you travel to the White House, and you meet the outgoing president there, and together you travel to the place where you will take the oath of office and be sworn in, and it's a huge ceremony massive hundreds, thousands and thousands of people there. And you, you, you make a speech and everybody compares your speech to JFK back in the 60s. And, uh, and everyone goes, oh, it's not as good as that, is it? Everybody, it happens every time. And then, uh, it's then I don't know, Vic, Dan, Vic Van, Van Dyke or somebody comes up and sings. They do, somebody sings, don't they? And they, they lead them all in the American anthem and they all get all terribly patriotic and, you know, like, like no one else, I know. And uh, they do all of that and so, sometimes they might pray, you know, they might do that. And then they process back with all the cars going back to the White House. And then you walk into the White House and you are taken to the West Wing and you go through the outer office and then you walk into the Oval, the oval Office. <laughs> Look, this is a big moment I'm building up to here. <laughs> to gurgle like that just isn't appropriate when I'm coming to my big moment. American politics. American <laughs> So, you're, you're, go, you're in the White House, you're heading towards the Oval Office. You go into the Oval Office, you go up to the desk, and you sit down. That's what you do. Do you sit down to have a rest? Well, you would think so after all of that, wouldn't you? But no. 
The president sits down because this moment on, he is going to begin to govern. His rule, if you will, starts as he sits down. There's a promise in Psalm 110, and very like the passage that Pete read out yesterday from Psalm 2, where my Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What it's promising is that a son of David, a king, would be enthroned one day, but far beyond any normal king of Israel. There would come a king who would one day sit at the right hand of God and rule the world. And it's happened. After Jesus went to the cross, he was buried and three days later he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death and the devil. For 40 days he spent time with his disciples, sharing with them, talking to them, talking to them about the kingdom, explaining who he was and explaining the way that things were going to work out in the way ahead. And then on the 40th day he ascended and went to the right hand of God. In Acts, it says, in Acts it says, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking to the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Paul, talking about this fact, he says this, and he's, he's caught up in a long passage, but he says this in the book of Ephesians. It says, Ephesians in 1, he said, that power, talking about the Holy Spirit, is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And what we're going to do this, this morning is we're going to look at the insider's view. Revelation gives us the insider's view from inside the White House, from inside of heaven, actually what happened and what took place because there's things that we need to learn about his reign. So if you would turn to the second most glorious chapter in the Bible, chapter 4, what it says in chapter 4 is that there is a great throne in heaven. A great throne. And what it talks about is on this glorious, great throne, God reigns in his majesty. On the throne, God reigns in majesty. And it talks about it in the most pictorial, wonderful language. It says, uh, one sat there as had the appearance of jasper and ruby. And then it says, encircling the throne, a rainbow that shone, around, shone like an emerald encircled the throne. A rainbow represents God's mercy. 
And then surrounding the throne were 24 elders. If you read it, let your eyes go over chapter 4. 24 elders. 24 elders represent all the people of God. 12 from the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 from the New Testament, the 12 apostles. 24 elders representing all of the people of God. Then from the throne comes lightning and thunder. And what does that represent? It represents the power of God, him coming in judgment. So from the throne comes the power of God. In front of the throne are seven lamps, and the seven lamps represent the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And before the throne is a sea of glass. Uh, Ask me afterwards if you want to, but it represents God's victory over evil. So before God's throne is his victory over evil. And then around the throne, so we have on the throne, God in his majesty, encircling the throne, God in his mercy, surrounding the throne, the people of God from Old and New Testament. From the throne coming the power of God. In front of the throne is the spirit of God. Before the throne is the victory of God. And around the throne are four creatures. And they represent creation. Uh, The the, the, the boldest, the strongest, the wisest, the swiftest of all creation. So here we have this extraordinary picture of God in his majesty. Then in chapter 5, we have the most glorious, the first most glorious chapter in the whole Bible. And what we see in chapter 5 is an extraordinary heavenly ceremony of Jesus taking up his reign. Are you ready? Verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals to open the scroll? But no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And then, when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands and thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the, on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us as we look into this extraordinary chapter. And help us to see that Jesus reigns. Help us to see in our lives and in our cities, in our nation, in our world, Jesus reigns. So come to us, we pray, and help us to understand these words and make them real in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, central to this story is a scroll. We think, oh, a scroll, that seems odd. Seals, seven seals, oh, that's odd. But actually, if you were a first century person, you would understand it and recognize it straight away. It was a legal document. It was a kind of like a will, like a contract. That's how they used to do it. They used to write them on scrolls. The one that's talked about here was pressed, so it had writing on the front and on the back. But it was sealed by people of authority and to be opened and for the contents to be revealed at the right time, but only by people who were authorised to do so. We would use <coughs> JPs or magistrates or judges or whoever in our day and age. And they saw that and they recognised that this is what was going on. So what's the scroll? What's it all about? What's, what's, the, what's in the scroll? Well, the scroll represents God's plan, hidden, secret plan. God's plan to undo and overthrow the world. That's, that's the, every evil power, everything that stands against God and his kingdom. And it's his plan to destroy all the evil projects that are already started and already seem to have gained so much ground. It is God's new orders. If you're a military person, you'd see it. It's time to open the orders. You'd open the orders. Ah, this is what we're supposed to do. This is how it's supposed to work out. It is God initiating something brand new. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. So the scroll was there in God's hand on this glorious throne in heaven. And then the ceremony starts. And it starts by someone saying, who is worthy to open the scroll? And they look around. It's a bit like that question that you ask at a marriage. We're used to, I used to do it, uh, you'd have a marriage ceremony, don't do it anymore, but it used to get to the point in the wedding ceremony where you'd say, but first I am required to ask, is there anyone present who knows any reason why these two may not be lawfully married to say it now or forever hold thy peace? You used to say. It's a bit like that. And it was always a funny moment in weddings because you'd wait for, a, for just a moment and nobody would say anything and you'd go like that. And then everyone would go, oh, that's all right then. We can carry on. It was one of those kind of funny moments. But it's a bit like that. It's a ceremony where the question goes out, who is worthy? And there's a pause and there isn't anyone. And John, who has got this extraordinary experience of seeing all these things from the inside, he thinks, oh, this is terrible. There's, there's nobody that can initiate God's plan. There's, there's nobody who is worthy of, of actually initiating the new orders that God has for the whole world to undo all evil. There's no way it can be done. And he weeps and he weeps. And then an elder comes along. And this is what elders do best. They come along best. They, they put their arm around you and they say, 
don't worry, it'll be all right. <laughs> that's, that's what we do. Uh, it's, it's what you say. It will be all right. It's okay. He is reassured, and he is reassured and told, don't worry, there is a lion. He says, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. What's this about? In Genesis 49, it is prophesied that there would come a, a Messiah, come a man of God from the tribe of Judah, a king who would be like a roaring, victorious, conquering lion. He is of the, branch, the root of David, often talked about the branch of David. In other words, he's from the family tree of King David. So a king like King David, who was the greatest of the kings of Israel. Another king like him would come and he would be the one and he would be a roaring, ferocious lion who would show his power and how conquering he is. And then the ceremony starts and like a wedding, the door at the back opens and John looks at the door at the back, just like a wedding, we all turn around to see the bride in her white coming forward. Well, John looks expecting to see a lion walk in to this, this, this place where he could approach the throne. And what he sees is a lamb looking as though he had been slain. What is this about? Well, this is the Passover lamb. This is Jesus, the one who gave his life. So that they, the, just as in the Old Testament there was a day when uh, Passover happened and God was going to bring judgment on the people of, Israel, of Egypt and they slaughtered a lamb and placed the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lintel. And they, in doing that, having had the blood of the lamb cover them, the angel of death passed over, literally passed over. And Jesus, the Passover lamb... The suffering servant of Isaiah 53, he was the one who walked into the ceremony. What's this about? That the lion of the tribe of Judah is also the suffering servant. He's also the Passover lamb. This is a king who outworks his reign, not through the sword, not through the gun, not through politics, not through money on the market. This is a king whose reign is through self-giving and self-sacrifice, who extends mercy and forgiveness. This is the lion and the lamb. And Jesus, the lion and the lamb, takes the scroll from the Father and begins his reign. Verse 7, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Our glorious God our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our glorious God, who is the Lord Almighty, our glorious God, who is God who is sovereign over all things, is also the God who reigns. Jesus earned the right to reign and sit at the right hand of the Father. Well, because Jesus reigns, several things are outworked, and there are three points because there has to be. There are three points. And the first one is this. Because Jesus reigns, he receives the prayers of the people of God. Verse 8. And when he had taken it, when he began his reign, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. 
Each one held a harp and were holding a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. This is what Jesus does. What his reign means. His reign means that he receives and therefore acts to fulfill the prayers of the people of God. That's what he does. So Daniel, who we talked about last night, but Daniel, who prayed and prayed earnestly for the return of the people of God, that prayer gets answered because Jesus reigns. Yes. And was it just a small group of ethnic people who returned to a particular place and land? No, it wasn't, because Jesus reigns. Actually, it's all people everywhere who can go home to their father. See, it's possible now for people to go home because Jesus reigns. The prayer of Habakkuk, that he prayed and he was crying out, Oh Lord, how long? How long? Again and again he cries out, How long is it going to be before actually justice comes to the world? Before you act and overturn the evil that is going on? And Habakkuk's prayer is being fulfilled. Jesus receives that prayer and he acts to fulfill the prayer of Habakkuk, that evil will be overthrown. Hosea's prayer that the unfaithful wife that Israel was could possibly be restored and brought back is being fulfilled because Jesus reigns. And Jesus has promised that his people will be a bride which will be spotless and pure, who he is making holy and holy restored that he might bring her to be with him forever and ever at the wedding feast of the Lamb, which we celebrated again today. That Ezekiel's prayer for a temple to be rebuilt is fulfilled because Jesus reigns. And guess what? All of your prayers, all that, all that you have to pray and, and send to God, actually, he hears those prayers. He receives those prayers and acts to fulfill them. My point this morning is the same point that Pete made last night, that this glorious God, almighty, sovereign, reigning, has chosen to outwork his reign through the prayers of a people, his people, is as incense. And when we prayed last night, and when you go home and you're on your own, or when you gather as churches and you pray, your prayer rises as incense before God. It's a beautiful smell that comes up before God. And it comes, in, as it were, in bowls before the Lamb, before the Jesus who reigns. And later on in Revelation, we find out that those bowls get poured out. See, this is what's happening. I don't know. I struggle to pray. I pray a lot, but I struggle to pray. I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray. I don't know quite what's right. And my words don't come out as the way that I want them to. Sometimes it's just difficult to pray. But you know, God is so wonderful. He is able to take everything we meant to pray, everything we kind of prayed but wasn't really sure how, everything we thought we were praying, which was a really good idea, but that really wasn't why it was going to work out. And he, we're, he's able to take all of those prayers and in his greatness and his sovereignty and receive them and answer them. He's able to do that kind of thing. The small stuff you pray for, I still pray for those small things, don't you? I still pray, I go drive into a car park, oh Lord, please let there be a parking space today. And then people push in front of you and you feel the wrath of God, don't you? And, you know, I said, but you know, and it's fine to pray about small things. It's abs of course he is. God, is God interested in the small things of your life? Of course he is. But do you know what? You could pray for big things. 
You can pray for the presidential election if you like. You can pray for the situation in Syria. You can pray for the unrest in northern Africa. You can pray for those things, and it makes a difference because sovereign God, in his reign, chooses to act according to our prayers. And all of our prayers come up before him. He receives them, and he acts on them. He does that. You see, the kingdom of God is about words, works, and wonders, and we're all slightly different where we stand on those things. Some of us are more works-focused. Some of us are more wonders-focused. Some of us are more words-focused. That's fine. But we're a people of the kingdom whose activities are all undergirded by people who pray. I'm calling us to pray. Great moves of God around the world are always preceded by people who pray. What, does our country need a great move of God? It most surely does. It's always preceded by people who pray. I'm calling us to prayer. Why? Because Jesus reigns. We're not trying to make something happen. This is how he has chosen to outwork his reign. See, everything has changed now. Everything has changed. Jesus reigns and he responds to your prayer. And of course, they burst into song. How could they not? How can we not burst into song? How can we not sing and dance? when we consider that Jesus reigns. Is it a new song? Yes, it is. It's always a new song. Every time is a new song. And it's a new song that we sing over and over again. When I was a young man, we used to sing hymns. And there was a hymn that really struck me when I was first a Christian, when I first became a Christian, and it was from this, from this passage. It went, with harps and with vials, not vials as in the bowl, with harps and with vials there stands a great throng in the presence of Jesus and sings this new song. Unto him who has loved us and washed us from sin, unto him be the glory forever. Amen. And I liked it because verse 4 said, He maketh the rebel a priest and a king, so that others believing a new song can sing. Unto him who has loved us and washed us from sin, unto him be the glory forever. Amen. Because Jesus reigns, I am calling us to prayer. It just seems crazy. Look, in this day of technology, can't we pray together somehow? Is there not a way that we, you know, you're up here, we're down there, are we surely, somehow or other, through videos or something or other, surely we can pray together somehow? I call us to pray. I call us to pray for God's kingdom to come. The second thing that is outworking because Jesus reigns, not only does he receive the prayers of his people, he also rescues the nations. It says in verse 9, they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons, men and women from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. For 20 centuries, Jesus has been saving people from all the nations. It started right from the beginning, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It started every nation right at the beginning, and it has carried on reaching every nation, and it has gone as far as it can geographically because it's got here. God is reaching 
people from every nation. His blood, his power, his victory means it's possible for people, for family, for tribes, for iwis, for nations to come to know God, to be born again, to get saved. It is possible for that to happen. What is remarkable is even in my lifetime, which isn't that long really, those nations which we regarded as unreached are nations which are now heavily populated by God's people. In my lifetime, we all thought China was an unreached nation. When the Boxer Revolution happened and all the missionaries were kicked out, all the Westerners were kicked out, we all thought, and we were all praying very fervently because, well, there are no Christians there anymore, only to discover in the 1980s that there were tens of millions of Christians because the gospel had got out there and it worked its way through people groups. And now there are hundreds of millions of people in China who own the name of Jesus. So much so it's a beginning to affect government. So much so it's affecting in the whole of the nation. So much so that they're now sending Chinese, because there's Chinese everywhere. They're sending missionaries everywhere, all over the place. Chinese missionaries are going around reaching other nations for Christ. My friend who leads the Chinese church in Christchurch, last year they saw 40 people, 40 adults baptised, saved and baptised last year. 40 people. He said Chinese, he said Chinese, he said it's ever so easy to get them into the kingdom. He said really hard to disciple them. He said Japanese, he said really hard to get them into kingdom, but once they're in, they're wonderful disciples. He said, so I'm telling you, we're working with this church in Japan, they've got 60, 70 people in their church, mostly new converts. He said, well, it's amazing, amazing number of people to see as disciples in that land. It's a wonderful thing. Three years ago, I went to my old college so I went back to my college and I sat in a chapel, uh, just, just like this, room just like this, and I sat over there somewhere, and uh, this young black man came ne- to sit next to me. And I said, oh, hello, my name's Ken, I'm away from, oh, I'm from here. I said to him, so what church do you go to? He said, I go to a church called Redeemer. I said, not the Redeemer Church in London. And he said, yeah. I said, what, the one that is estimated to have over 50,000 people in it? He said, yeah, that's the one. I said, come on. I said, tell. I said, I was desperate to find out more. Tell me all about it. So we sat in the chapel talking backwards and forwards. How is it led? Is it really one church? How many locations are there? What's going on? How does it? And I said, to how many locations? I hear there's 200 locations for your the, the, the church. 50,000 people in London. I hear there's 20, 200 locations. He said, there are so many locations we have now lost count. I hear, even this weekend that that church and churches like it are now actually to be found in town after town, city after city in London, uh, in the UK. And you think this is extraordinary. We thought this was an unreached people group. Now they're the people who are sending people to us. What's interesting, my friend, I was talking to somebody yesterday about my friend Paul Song, a Korean guy, a pastor in Korea, went to London. He had two words of English, amen and hallelujah. (laughs) I, honestly, and he, he, he went to this unreached nation called Britain, right? An unreached people group. He went to London, and he had two words, amen and hallelujah. So he went out on the streets, and he stood on a box, and he started preaching. Amen, hallelujah, 
Hallelujah. Amen. And he kept on. That's all he could say because of all he had. It, was, it wasn't a very full message. He was just proclaiming, Amen. Hallelujah. And this man came up to him and started berating him and swearing at him and carrying on at him and going, out, going for him right in front of him while he was out going. He kept on going, Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. And this man kept swearing, cursing him. And then all of a sudden, this guy who was cursing him broke down, fell to the ground in sobs, absolutely overcome with conviction of his sin. So my friend Paul picks him up, takes him to a nearby church where he knows there's some people there, and makes says, do something with him. It turns out, this, these folk, they led him to Christ, and he went on to be a pastor of a church. And you just go... Jesus is reaching people. He hasn't stopped. He reigns. He's reaching nations. And we have a nation which is estimated to be three generations from the gospel. Most, most young people especially are three generations away from somebody who is really believing. Do you know, we have a history as a nation of the gospel in our nation, but we are now an unreached people group. And here's the reality. Jesus is looking to reach those people. They know nothing. People in our, uh, under 35s especially, they know nothing. But there is, a, there is a deep longing in people's hearts. This is what I'm coming across as I talk to people. There is a deep longing. They are dissatisfied with what materialism can offer. There is a longing for community. There is a longing for authenticity. They want something else. My friends, there is a nation out there of people from all kinds of races and backgrounds who are open and ready to hear the gospel. I commission us, let's go. This Jesus is reigning. Therefore, we reach all nations. Because Jesus reigns, he receives the prayers of his people. Because Jesus reigns, he rescues the nations. And thirdly, because Jesus reigns, he resources the church. Verse 10, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests, to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. There are two ways you can look at the church. If you look from a human point of view, what you see is a marginalized, in many places declining organization of people who don't really fit. From a heavenly point of view, when you look at the church, what you see is a community that was founded, that was empowered, that was commissioned and is captained by Jesus Christ. What you see is a bride that whom he is beautifying and breaking ready to bring to be with him forever. What he sees is a body. What he sees is the family of God. And he called them to be a kingdom, priests, and people who will reign. We are called to be a kingdom, a community, a nation, a people immediately under his rule. Immediately under his rule. Not organisationally, not an institution, but immediately under his rule. 
I love the church broadly. I, I've honestly, I've had. It's quite extraordinary how many opportunities I've had and how doors keep opening. I've I've preached in the Anglican Cathedral. I've led prayers in the Anglican Cathedral. I turned up to the Catholic Cathedral recently, and the the guy who is now in charge of the Catholic Church down in Christchurch, he runs up to me, puts his arms around, he says, "Oh, King, so pleased you're here. This is a Catholic priest, Father Rick. He's oh, so pleased you're here." He said, "What are you doing in this service?" I said, "I'm not doing anything." He said, oh, we can't have that, he said. And before I know it, I'm leading a service in the Catholic Cathedral. And it's like, what? You know, this is a person who didn't know what Lent was and had to look it up in Wikipedia recently. I mean, honestly, it's just crazy how it happens. I am for the body of Christ, but I am longing for the church to be restored to the intent that Jesus had. The closer I get to these various people whom I love, I think, oh, Lord, you've got to do something more than this. Lord, you've got to restore your church and bring it back to the New Testament. Lord, you've just got to do this. In this age, please let it be so that your church shines like it should. And it isn't caught up in all the politics over there and all the squabbles over here. And should we do this? And must we make a policy on this? A friend of mine is in a Presbyterian church. He said, he said, we have leaders meetings. He said, the rule books for leaders meetings are bigger than I can fit in my car. He says, and you think... Is this the church under the immediate rule of Christ? Now, forgive me, I'm for these people, I love them, I want the best. But Lord, please, let your reign come so that your church is restored to what you intended. I long for that, I burn for that. Not denominational protocols, not earthly hierarchies, not a business. It's not a business, it's a family. And we do things because we're under the immediate rule of Jesus. He says, go this way, and we say, yes, Lord. Not, right, we've got to fill out a form, intribligate, and send it to the higher No, no, Jesus says, let's do this. So you go, yeah, we will. Jesus said, I want you to sacrifice. And you say, yes, okay, I will, because you say, I'm willing to do it. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? We are a kingdom. We are priests. It doesn't mean you dress up in funny clothes and, you know, swing things or whatever. I don't understand all of that. It doesn't mean that. Who is a priest? A priest is the one who stands in the gap between one person and God. One people and God. And what it means is, of course, that you represent to God all those people, so therefore we pray. And we bring these people regularly, often to God in prayer. That's our priestly role as we have in the earth. That's absolutely right. But also, we represent God to them. What it means is that as you walk down the street, Jesus is walking down the street and his reign goes with you. That's what it means. It means when you walk into an office meeting office, you sit there, you're a representative of heaven. So your question should be, how is the reign of God going to work out through me in this meeting? Seriously? Yeah, I really mean that. I really mean that. We are priests. We sit differently. Recently, um, uh, somebody who, especially in Canterbury, is very much in the public eye, very much in the public eye, uh, came to see me at my office. Uh, it's somebody I've had a friendship with in the past, and recently he came, I haven't seen him for a little while, he came back to see me. And uh, he sat down in my room, and he just opened up, just wanted to talk. Wanted to talk about all the pressures and all the terrible things he's been through. And I stop and I pray with him. Is he a Christian? He's not a Christian. He's far from God. But I have a role towards him and for him. 
and I can show the love of God to that person and pray with him. I had this opportunity. My, occasionally, we, um, uh, we bring some pastors together across the city to have a prayer meeting. And we had this prayer meeting where the mayor, Mayor of Christchurch, Leanne, was uh, speaking at this, this meeting. And I was introducing the meeting, so she sat with me on the front pew of this, this Presbyterian church. And, uh, and then my friend Don Scott got up and said, oh, we're all going to pray now, so we're just going to split into small groups and, uh, and just pray together. So I looked round, and, and there was just me and Leanne, you know, sat there. everyone else had just disappeared. So I turned to Leanne and I said, um, how do you feel about prayer? And she went, oh. I said, don't worry. I said, I'm really good at it. <laughs> I said, I do it all the time, I said. So... So I had 10 minutes to pray with the mayor of Christchurch on my own, and I pray with her, I pray my heart out for her, and asking God to, to show his love and his blessing. And yeah, it's, it's lovely. And as she, I say amen, and she opens her eyes, all filled with tears, she said, oh, you're right, you're really good at that. <laughs> it's, uh, actually, I met her again at a funeral, some weeks later at uh, uh, the Catholic bishop's funeral, I met her there, and she, uh, on seeing me, because I was sat near her, on seeing me, she rushed up to me, she flung her arms around me, and she said, there's some people here I'd like you to meet, and she went to introduce me to her family, and introduced me to her favourite Catholic priest, you know? Now, it, what, what's this all about? We are priests. We are priests. We represent God to other people. That means we've got to be really careful what we say and how we behave and what we do with ourselves. We are a kingdom and priests. And it says, and they will reign on earth. I believe that's future. Matthew 5 says, the meek shall inherit the earth. You will inherit the earth. I believe it's now. I believe we reign in life. Paul says, now we reign in life. Jesus reigns and therefore we reign in life. What that means is that it's not circumstances that reign over you. Jesus does. It's not the difficulties. It's not the hardship that reign over you. Jesus does. It's not bad luck. We don't live under that. No, Jesus rules over you, and despite, despite the tragedies and the difficulties and the hardships that we face, they don't dictate who you are and what's going to happen to you. He does. He dictates who you are and where you're going. He reigns, we reign, and from his place of reigning, he gives gifts to the church. You are those gifts to the church. Ephesians 4 talks about the ascended Christ gives gifts of apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. And I would add administrators and worship leaders and people who work with children and all the other things that could be included on that list as well. He gives you as a gift to the church. Your part is absolutely crucial. Who you are and what you can do for the churches is absolutely crucial to us all. You are a gift to the church. And you shall reign. I'm calling us to build and to plant churches in New Zealand and overseas. I don't believe the call of God on any of us was for a small thing, but it was to reign in life. And the ascended Jesus 
the one who sits in all power and authority, he receives the prayers of his people, he rescues the nations, and he resources the church, and he uses you to do that very thing. I'm calling us as a, as a movement, as a family of churches together, to plant churches, to reach nations, here and further afield, and to be a people who pray together for his kingdom to come, knowing the assurance that he will answer our prayers. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. If you have a feeling that you are called to prayer, if you believe that God is calling you to the nations, if God has planted something in your heart about church planting, we're going to pray for you this morning.